0: Hello and welcome to The Investor's Guide to China. I'm Paris Anand, Chief Investment Officer for Asia Pacific at Fidelity International. Today in our fourth episode, we're exploring the environmental factors that are emerging as topical issues for investors in China. The country's taken center stage on climate change for both good and bad reasons. So where does China find itself today and what could its drive towards a target of peak carbon emissions by 2030 actually mean for investors? With me today are three of Fidelity's China and global sustainability experts. In our London studio is Marty Dropkin, Global Head of Research for Fixed Income, and on the line from Taipei is Belinda Lau, a Fixed Income Portfolio Manager. And dialing in from Singapore, we have Jen Hui Tan. Fidelity's head of sustainability. Thank you all for joining me. Hi. Thank you. We're a more dispersed group than usual because of the coronavirus outbreak. Belinda, you're joining us from home in Taipei. To what extent has the outbreak disrupted the operation of financial markets in China?
1: Actually everything is business as usual. Yes, everyone works from home now in either Hong Kong or China and stuck in Taipei. But we still be able to trade everything, liquidity, not a really a big issue at the moment. Marty,
0: from a more removed perspective, what's the view on the fixed income floor here in London?
2: Uh, I mean, First of all, our, our thoughts go out to our colleagues in, in Hong Kong and Taipei and Singapore, who are really weathering the storm very effectively The markets are really, I think, starting to look through the virus. And if there's one thing in particular that I've noticed about the fixed income dynamic, it's that the new issue machine, which is obviously driven by central bank liquidity injection, is still as strong as ever. So back to the topic
0: of today's show. China is the world's biggest producer of carbon dioxide emissions with a huge reliance on coal-fired energy. In fact, its coal-fired capacity has grown by almost 5% over the last two years. So the country holds this unusual accolade of being both the greenest and the most polluting country in the world. It generates the most wind and solar power, but also builds the most coal-fired power plants. Jen, this is another one of those aspects of China which arouses such strong emotions amongst investors. How is the country balancing its need for cheap energy and driving growth in the economy with its green credentials?
3: So I guess the first thing I would say is that coal energy is not cheap energy, not when you account for all of the negative externalities associated with that kind of energy energy production. And I think China has recognised that over the years in terms of the human cost of pollution, and health implications. You know, although China's emissions intensity is falling, the total share of emissions is rising and it is the world's largest emitter and it does continue to build coal-fired power plants. And so China's role is critical in helping the world meet its climate change targets. China has made uh, commitments under the Paris Agreement that include the peaking of its carbon emissions by 2030 and changing the primary mix of its energy generation to include renewable sources of up to 20%. Now, some people may feel that that isn't sufficient, but I think from where China is today, we need to be realistic about China's power generation needs and how China is going to address these problems in the future.
0: So you feel that this is today more of an issue of perception versus reality and that some of the positive steps that are being taken in the country are overshadowed by this focus on the scale of the coal-fired generation?
3: That is true to some extent. So let me give some examples. China has put out its emission standards for light duty vehicles. This is called the the standard six. This was initially uh, meant to come into place in uh, 2020. um, And China has decided to accelerate the introduction of that to 2018. So already we're starting to see uh, positive steps being taken to address what China knows is is, is a national crisis. Marty, you've been one of the driving
0: forces behind Fidelity's sustainability ratings. So these are proprietary ratings that the global team of analysts generate for each company, both for equity and fixed income. Tell me, how do you create these in a market like China, where a lot of the fixed income universe is arguably under-researched?
2: If I think about the way we've sort of applied the the proprietary rating from a global perspective, um, we've broken the world down by sector. And our sector analysts then get together, whether they be from China, India, London, all all over the world, and they're applying the same standard, the same questions by sectors. And then they debate what the critical factors are and how we should score companies against each other. So this process, and and, and I should mention that it's a very forward-looking process, and based on... The meetings that we have with companies is, is I think, think a very unique way that we can apply it.
0: So you're not facing a data issue in China specifically relative to any other market in the world?
2: Uh, The the data can be weak in China, but it could also be weak for, say, U.S. high-yield companies. Mm -hmm. But I think what we can kind of build on is our analyst capability and that they get to know the companies better.
1: Yes, and when from the investment perspective, sectors like metals and mining or energy or utility are more tangible factors to monitor Such in such sector like for carbon intensity per ton of production, energy intensity per ton of production, water intensity. Also, worth keeping in mind that some banks are reducing their exposure to the sector now, and so are some asset managers in both equity and credit side. So, access to funding for this sector is actually going down, and that's the situation that we are monitoring. And lastly, more relevant to the higher space. Some single B companies tend to focus less on ESG aspects given their focus on growth and limited resources. So ESG ratings tend to have some bias toward higher-rated credits like IG, which is you know quite justified.
3: Jen? So I think the other benefit of the proprietary rating scheme that Marty mentioned is that from an engagement perspective, it also helps us to identify what are the key issues that we want to be going out and engaging companies on. Traditionally, one of the areas that Climate Action 100+, the world's largest investor grouping uh, focusing on climate change issues has had difficulty with, is with emerging markets, and particularly in China, where the cultural nuances around engagement uh, re- require a more targeted approach. And really talking to them about climate governance, climate strategy, and how they're going to be addressing uh, this thorny question of, of emissions reduction.
1: So one example of our ESG engagement and rating process is With a Hong Kong-based um, power utilities company, we had communication with the firm during their new issue roadshow. The company is, you know, internally A-rated on ESG, was dedicated to carbon reduction. We have a very good quantitative disclosure on its emission reduction execution over the year, despite the fact that it's an unlisted company. So they actually go out and provide us a lot of information. It also makes a, quite a big contribution to Hong Kong's goal to, to increase share of clean energy usage. So when we look at it, we like it and we will assign a good A-plus rating to it.
0: While China is a top player in the renewable energy market, we also know that the government's subsidies in the sector have been falling. And we'll hear an example in a moment from our Asia editor Neil Goff from the wind energy sector. But Jen, how does that reckon with what you're seeing on the regulatory front?
3: So I think there's no doubt that China is taking quite serious steps in regulation to address its policy commitments and reduce its carbon dioxide emissions. One very notable thing that we're expecting later this year is for the first trade to occur under China's new emissions trading scheme. And this will eventually cover eight billion tons of carbon dioxide from up to 100,000 industrial plants, focusing initially on the coal fired power generation sector. Now, clearly, the price of carbon is not where it needs to be. China knows that the world knows that. But this is a very important part of the infrastructure that's needed to get that carbon price up to where it needs to be in the future. And Marty, from your global perspective, how do you evaluate
0: the pace of change that you're seeing in China relative to the rest of the world?
2: I think it's one of the most challenging areas that the analysts across fixed income and equity face, which is the data quality is gonna vary by geography, it'll vary by sector. Clearly the pace of change is rapid in China. And one anecdote that I have is, yeah, when I visited Shanghai 18 months ago, and I started talking about ESG and sustainability, They kind of looked at me like I was a bit, you know, sort of off my rocker. Mm. Today, it's front and center. And, you know, we're seeing this from the Fidelity analysts. We're seeing this from companies. And clearly, the reaction is, is profound.
0: And do you think that things like party committees within companies have actually been a force for positive change in this regard? Jen?
3: Yeah. So I think when party committees were first introduced, I think there was a lot of suspicion and, and a lot of concern about how they would interact with the board and the management structures, the way in which traditional governance experts would expect them to. But I think the way it's worked out is that it's, it's ended up being quite a positive conduit for government relationships and managing employee relationships within large private companies. And if I
2: can pick up on what Jen just said and I can compare it to the US.
3: I'm often asked as
2: an American, how is ESG, how is sustainability kind of permeating the US infrastructure? And you juxtapose that with what's going on in China from a top-down perspective from the US, I think it's much more a bottom-up driven process. Mm -hmm. And I think it's interesting, this sort of global phenomenon
4: and global dynamic. I'm sitting here today in West Kowloon, in an open-air plaza not far from uh, Hong Kong's Victoria Harbour. And there's a light breeze in the air, which is fitting because I'm joined by Alice Lee, who is an equity analyst at Fidelity covering wind power companies, among other things. Alice, welcome. Thanks for making the time.
5: Hi, thanks, Neil.
4: So give us a sense of how big is China's uh, wind farm sector?
5: So in China, the wind power actually took off in 2006. And from 2006 to 2019, the wind power capacity grew at 44% KG. China has become the largest market in terms of total installed uh, wind power capacity, followed by EU and the USA. And in 2019, it accounted for 25% market
4: share. 25% of all wind power is installed in China.
5: Yes, so then in terms of China, in China, uh, wind power is now the third largest power uh, sources. Uh, China is still dominated by the thermal power, followed Meaning by the hydro power. Coal, yeah, right? Coal. Basically, okay, <laughs> basically okay. Coal. Yeah, and followed by the hydro power. Wind power now accounted for around five to six percent of total power generation.
4: So, China's biggest wind power market in the world, a quarter of the global market share. Subsidies, government subsidies, have been a big driver of the growth of this sector, but. It's also now kind of one of the biggest challenges for the sector if yeah. you look at the year ahead. Can you explain a little bit what's going on? The government's essentially cutting subsidies, is that what's happening? Yeah,
5: yeah that's true. After uh, over 10 year nurturing, the supply chain has scaled up and in China the per unit production cost of the wind power has shot by uh, 36% in the past six years. Because the wind power has been getting cheaper, and in China, the government faces the physical pressure, so it decided to phase out tariff subsidy. The first subsidy cut happened in 2015, and China now decided to uh, remove the subsidy completely for new projects from 2021.
4: That's pretty dramatic. What impact do you think that's going to have on the sector?
5: So in the short term, this will lead to the rush installation. We can see that in 2019, the annual installation was up uh, 21% and the new investment was up 81%. I expect this trend to continue and in 2020, I think that the annual installation will continue to grow.
4: So people basically trying to get ahead of the phase out of subsidies by (laughs) doing all their construction now, front-loading yes. it basically. Yes. So how else are companies responding to this challenge? You travel around China and visit wind farms, right? Uh, what are you seeing? How are they trying to manage costs and, and that kind of thing?
5: They are trying to manage operation and maintenance cost through the uh, AI technology. I visited a wind farm in Beijing and it used monitors to try to inspect all the uh, wind farm's conditions, and it is actually an unmanned wind farm. This could unmanned. help... Yeah, unmanned okay. wind farm. So this could help to reduce the operation cost, and also it could help to uh, reduce the labor error.
4: And how, I mean, specifically how? What kind of things can a... Uh an automated system or a computer detect it and do better than a person could do. Yeah, those
5: sensors could help to detect the wind speed and also the wind direction. So they could try to adjust the blade direction to better utilize the wind resources.
4: Interesting. Well, I think we're about out of time for today, but thank you very much, Alice, and it's a pleasure to speak with you.
5: Yeah, thanks, Neil.
4: So, as Alice says there, fiscal
0: pressures are resulting in a cut of subsidies for wind farm projects. Belinda, in your space as a fixed income uh, portfolio manager, have you seen other renewable energy operators run into trouble?
1: Yes, well, wind power and solar power had been an interesting theme in Asia fixed income because of this shift in policy direction. And coincidentally, we are having local government funding pressure because of the deleveraging that's going on in China. So that we are seeing wind power companies, especially the private one, run into problem in a way that they cannot get subsidy, they cannot get payment from the central government or local government. And another things that we're also paying attention is the private companies funding assets. So this is not unique to just the renewable energy sector, but really a key factor that we look when we're evaluating a company's credit worthiness.
0: So rising risks, especially in the high yield
2: sector, would that be fair to say, Marty? I, I think it's absolutely fair to say, and 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 you know what Belinda highlights is a very interesting dynamic in China, where there's a lot of state-owned enterprises. And, you know, those state-owned enterprises, the spreads, the valuations of those companies are linked to to Chinese government support. And so it, it really raises this question of how sustainability kind of influences valuations. And, and it shows how early we are in the process, because clearly for longevity of companies, it will influence valuations. But for now, with state-owned support, you know, companies may have higher valuations even though they're weaker on renewable or stronger on renewable.
0: And so how, how did the team then avoid the missteps in terms of credit selection in this space?
2: I think we have to take a longer term view. And, uh, you know, clearly spreads will move around on a day to day basis. But really what's going to drive fixed income performance is, is avoiding defaults. And that's where sustainability really comes in, because there is a correlation between default rates and, and good ESG scores. And that's what we're really encouraging the team to do.
0: But Jen, as part of a foreign investor that actively engages in Chinese companies on environmental issues across a range of sectors, how does China compare with the rest of Asia?
3: I think broadly speaking, China compares well in some parts and, and, and not in other parts. But I think the unique thing about China, which we need to remember, is that because of its size, because of its importance within global supply chains, whatever China does has global repercussions in a way that no other country within Asia does. So just to give you an example, we've been engaging with companies on their supply chain practices, Chinese manufacturers of garments and textiles focusing a lot on on environmental management practices, whether they're measuring waste and and water usage. And when we do that, what we know is that not only will we improve the practices of those Chinese companies, but we'll we'll almost certainly improve the practices of the global brands that are buying those products from Chinese companies. So that global implication, that global read-through from whatever China does, I think that can't be underestimated. So we started to hear
0: about some of the unique risks that come with investing in the renewable energy sector in the country. But there are other areas related to China's environmental ambitions that can be just as interesting for investors. Editor-in-Chief Richard Edgar has been talking to Bertrand Lecourt, a portfolio manager at Fidelity with a focus on water and waste, about China's developing infrastructure. They caught up in the cafeteria of our London office.
6: Beton, welcome to you. Um, You run a global portfolio that focuses on companies that deal with water and waste. What I want to know is why on earth is China relevant to you? Because I'd have thought it offers less opportunity than other countries where the environment's been on the agenda for many decades, perhaps. But have I got that all wrong? In the water side, you need to make sure you can absorb
7: all this population growth. You need to have clean water and some of the infrastructure still being developed so first you need to the drinking water side of things but then you have to clean the water, the wastewater side, so you need to build new capacity and that has been ramping up so the the government make sure that you have decent returns to the investment phase so um, in the past in our countries we used to put waste in landfills and I think China wants to move forward to to find a solution directly and one of the solutions has been to develop waste to energy and um, how are they doing that? the idea about uh, waste to energy is that China needs electricity and still a very big chunk of electricity is done by coal. And instead of putting waste in the landfill, which also generates some gases, by burning waste to do electricity, you offset coal, plant CO2, and landfill. So you have a double positive impact. And that means a big ramp up with new new constructions. And this is a big change in China. I remember when I went to Shanghai 15 years ago at the uh, very big landfill and you could see it was a very big hole. Uh, the feeling was sitting on the side and looking like, like a, you know, the U.S. Grand Canyon It's a very, very big hole. Sitting on the uh, edge of the Grand Canyon, <laughs> <laughs> that big. But yeah. it was, you know, you can see up to the horizon, it was very big. And you could see trucks of 30 tons coming 24-7 to dump uh, waste. So you jump directly to a new era where you use this waste differently. And I think that's quite interesting, especially if you have the right visibility on prices, at which price you will send it to the grid, how much margin will you get? And it seems that in China they try to stimulate the financing. There's been a very competitive environment to get this, this, this power uh, being put in place, but it's got a positive impact for the economy.
6: So you're working in a political environment that's different to other places. Does that mean that there are, there are different things you need to keep an eye on when you're investing in these particular companies?
7: Yes, well, you have to be a, a bit more careful on a few things. Uh, Firstly, obviously, the ownership structure. Some companies have, don't have government exposure, but some might have to, to some extent, not fully, but partially. So there's a few risks. Uh, with there a problem of uh, uh, alignment between what the management wants, the state wants, and the consumer wants. Overall, I think they all converge to the same direction. But short term, you have some mismatches. So you have to be very vigilant on how these projects are, are, are funded and a very good view on the future. Then there's another risk, which is um, uh, subsidies. Uh, will this last over time? Even if it doesn't last, is it um, really killing the economics of the project or not? And then accounting. Accounting is a transparency, but that's true for all Chinese names you invest in. But sometimes, when you do these big infrastructure investments, you have a certain type of accounting for the construction side which recognises revenues but has zero margin or not. So you have inflating of earnings. So you, this is extra work, and that's why sometimes you have a bit of,
6: uh, of discount in this kind of investment phase. So some specific risks to taking these sorts of investments in China um, around water and waste, but it sounds like you think it's worth it.
7: Yes, it's worth it because this is only one side of the story. You know, you have the investment in this infrastructure story, but for the long term, I think everybody benefits when it matures so and it's more visible. I think for investors. But you have a whole economy around this this, this, uh, this kind of stocks. You can have also pump makers or valve makers or uh, companies uh, building up um, uh, wastewater pipes. But it's true that where we see most growth is, uh, is probably waste in China. And um, if I look at my universe of uh, stocks, there's probably as many Chinese stocks uh, mainland or Hong Kong listed as the U- U.S. side. Uh, so you have to pre-size these companies over the time and pull go on-site, talk, see, to have the idea of the, uh, uh, of the size of the project. Get your
6: hands dirty, for want of a better phrase. Yes. Okay, Bertrand, thank you very much indeed. Thank
7: you.
0: So you get a clear sense there from Bertrand about China's drive to meet its urbanisation needs. What special pressures or considerations does that bring to investors, Jen?
3: So, the the way in which China has had to urbanize its uh, society in the last 30 years has been nothing short of miraculous in a global context. You know, we've seen some of the world's largest cities come up from very humble beginnings. And the way in which they've developed is particularly interesting because they've been digital first, if you like. A lot of the physical assets that you would associate with urbanization haven't necessarily been formed, but they've been replaced, if you like, by online, by digital, by e commerce players. At the same time, China has embraced smart city concepts in a very big way. So not just around practices of surveillance, but of traffic management, of crowd management, of crime prevention. And all of these things are now inbuilt into the, the, the fabric of large Chinese societies in a way that I think the, the developed cities are, are, are just now catching up to.
0: And moving from, Belinda, equity to a fixed income perspective, talk to me about how the green bond market is developing in, in China.
1: We actually see more green or social bond issuance recently. In 2019, we have 33 billion US dollar ESG bond issuance in Asia fixed income market alone. China counts for a third of that. Seems large, but you know, to put things into context, China is, you know, more than half of the Asia fixed income market. And you're talking about a market with, you know, one trillion US dollar. Well, admittedly, regional interest in ESG, you know, has been historically lagging global interest in Asia overall. However, we are seeing this encouraging trend with, you know, demand and supply driving each other. And in terms of valuation... We don't really see a valuation differential for green bond versus normal bond, but then we do see stronger demand for green bond for global investors who are becoming an important player in the Asia-fixing market.
2: There's clearly increasing demand for strategies like this, and and Fixed income investors, equity investors are looking at carbon transition not as an not as necessarily even an option anymore. It's something that, that they're almost starting to demand that that asset managers focus on. Green bonds, as Belinda just highlighted, will play a part of that, but just a part of it. I think it'll be much more pervasive and you know, not just in the fixed income markets, but across the whole capital structure.
0: So as we've heard today, you know, China is moving pace at evolving its kind of energy mix as the economy develops. But we're also learning about some emerging risks, particularly in the high yield fixed income markets as government subsidies are starting to fall around renewable energy. It's clearly taken a front row seat in terms of the evolution of the green bond market. But as we start to think about urbanisation more broadly, we can see that there are factors at play that go beyond simply the environment, but also infrastructure around water, waste, the built environment, and even the digital infrastructure. So that brings us to the end of our show today. Thank you to my studio guests, Marty Dropkin, Belinda Lau, and Jen Hui Tan, and to our other contributors, Alice Lee and Bertrand Lecourt. And thank you for listening. If you like what you've heard, then please rate us on your podcast app. And if you want to read more of what's been covered today, then please go to our website. Our producers were Seb Morton-Clark and Neil Goff, and the editor is Richard Edgar. Until next time, from Fidelity's London Studios, goodbye.